Good evening. In 19... Nicholas, why don't you have a chair? In 1983, last year, I printed with great effort, there are f those of you in the room who have printed wood type know how much fun it is. I printed with great effort the 1983 book arts press Valentine in good time and put them in the boxes, carefully gradated so that they would all reach the friends of the book arts press on Valentine's Day. The unfortunate event that I did not expect was what became known as the Great Snow of 1983. So that it was quite difficult to find the mailboxes by Friday when I put them in, and they stayed in the Bronx for the next several weeks, drying out as far as I can tell from the reports I got as to what they looked like by the time they finally got to you. The 1984 Valentines again went out in good time. People are still getting them. Relevant is that the spring schedule of the Friends of the Book Arts Press was in the 1984 Valentine. Some of you no doubt read the Valentine and threw away the piece of paper that was attached to it. All of this by way of a preface for my repeating the entire spring schedule for those of you who haven't yet got it. I will be sending a little booklet with this schedule in a week or so because it's now complete, so don't despair. But meanwhile, if you'd like to note down these dates, Kit Curie of H.P. Krauss is speaking on how to read an antiquarian bookseller's catalog on Monday the 5th of March. Old-timers will remember Kit Curie's absolutely brilliant speech here a couple of years ago on various aspects of antiquarian bookselling. William Bond, W.H. Bond, the retired head of the Houghton Library at Harvard and the professor of bibliography still at Harvard will be speaking on Thomas Hollis's American Bindings on Monday the 19th of, of March. Nicholas Pickwode, bookbinder and advisor to the National Trust in England for conservation, will be speaking on why there is no history of English bookbinding on Monday the 9th of April. James Mosley, the librarian of the St. Bride Printing Library in London and a constant visitor to these shores, will be speaking on Monday the 16th of March on the Renaissance Inscriptional Capital. What did I say, March? I meant to say April. Monday, April 16th. On Monday the 23rd of April, Linda Claussen, who is the Special Collections Librarian at the University of California, San Diego, will be giving a lecture entitled Hoeing Out the Augean Stables. Life is Special Collections Librarian at the University of California, San Diego. And on Monday the 30th of April, Clifton Jones, who is the librarian of the de Gaulier Collection at Southern Methodist University, will be talking about the de Gaulier Collection of Western Americana and travel at the Southern Methodist University. Those will all be in this room. They will all be at 6 p.m. They will all be on Monday. And beginning on the 9th of April, they will be every Monday. Our speaker this evening is Nicholas Barker, who needs no introduction to this audience, who will be speaking on 30 years of the book collector. It's a great pleasure to have him here.
This is actually my second performance here this afternoon. And there was some doubt, principally in my own mind, about the subject on which I was going to talk to you tonight. Yes, you may have. And it reminded me of uh, a, a young Victorian curate who was having trouble with his preaching, who was sent off to stay for a, a, an instructive weekend with a, one of those magnificent and distinguished Victorian preachers. And the young man arrived, one assumes, on the Friday and had a good dinner. Not much was said about sermons. And on Saturday there was much to do. I think they went hunting. And still no sign of the composition of any sermons. By the evening, the young man was on tenterhooks of, 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 of anticipation, not, not, not on account of his own possible lack of instruction, but on what in fact was going to happen tomorrow at morning prayer. Got up early, no signs of any activity. Preacher got up at the usual hour and they robed together and started walking out towards the churchyard and as they went they passed in the hall which like so many English rectories had a large Jacobean oak chest in the hall and as they went past it the famous preacher lifted it and he got a brief quick vision of a chest entirely filled with rolls of paper done up with pink tape pulled up one and looking at it said Ah, Hosea, an excellent choice. <laughs> so, if I get invited here much more often, we'll get on to Malachi by the time <laughs> you've finished. At any rate, this evening you've, you've got me on what if I have a home ground, you can really, I suppose, call home ground, which is the book collector. And... Um, it is rather more than 30, 30 years now. Uh, it's 32 years ago when the book collector was founded in 1952. At a time when, those of you who can remember that far back will remember, it was before book collectors as such had become an endangered species. Book collectors were to be found all over the place in those days. They came in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. There was the sixpenny barrow model, whose books were not remarkable for condition, but were all of them bargains. The my favorite authors model, for whom the word first edition was originally invented. The tuppence colored model, which specialized in color plate books. And there were others who lived on local topography, private press books, law books, travel and discovery. There were even one or two novel creatures who were foraging in the then virgin forests of economics and science. Most of all, there was the great transatlantic collector, which had been driven back into its native habitat or reservations by the war and was still rarely found in the Eastern Hemisphere. But whatever shape or size they came in, book collectors led a free, unfettered life. 
systematic study of the species, the ringing of typical specimens by librarians, the threat of extinction by tax collectors, investors, and inflation, all this lay in the future. It was indeed hard to draw systematic lines between such distinct species as librarians and collectors, or professionals and amateurs, and they all tended to be lumped together under the generic heading of book lovers. Bibliophiles, a word tainted by the suspicion that it ought to be pronounced with a French accent, was something you read but did not speak about. With this in mind, you will have some idea of the constituency to which the first book collector was addressed 30-plus years ago. Its title referred to a state of mind, a kind of interest, rather than a particular sort of person, something best conveyed by an apt parallel. There was, and I hope there still is, a journal in England called The Muck Shifter and Earth Removing Chronicle. <laughs> it's the, the sort of major support of the, uh, of the uh, construction industry. If you think of the book collector in that light, you will have some idea of what it is about. It's not about how to collect first editions, though you will learn much about them in its pages, nor how to tell the genuine article from fakes, nor how to buy cheap and sell dear, nor who paid how much for what, nor what is this worth. If this is all that interests you, there are other and better sources of information. The book collector will only offer you occasional help. What it does serve is that fraternity of book collectors in the sense I've just described. There's always a distinction that's apt to be made between people who just read books and book collectors who collect them admire their bindings, or printing, or just pat them. Anything but read them. I'm not going into that controversy, not tonight anyway, but I will say that you won't enjoy the book collector unless you're prepared to do both. I'm beginning to realize that I'm making it sound not only rather prim and proper, but even forbidding. Back then, for a moment more to its early history. In fact, uh, if you'll excuse a rather Irish turn of phrase, the first number of the book collector was not really its beginning at all. If you were to buy a set of back numbers right now, like as not you would find before the first volume, which rather tiresomely is in a smaller format than its successors, another little bunch of magazines, mostly no thicker than pamphlets, under the title of the book handbook. If you were very lucky, you would find them already bound together. More often than not, they remain unbound because it is all but impossible to work out the order of the pages. <laughs> Odd sections pop up in later numbers, intended, but not described as such, as supplements to earlier numbers. Indexes of what <laughs> appear separately or attached to issues to which they do not refer. I still get despairing or infuriated letters about it. All this may be explained if I quote from a note on page 3, III, 
which follows a blank leaf following an index paginated 477 to 85. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where PPI to II are, which runs as follows. This volume was issued serially in nine parts. The first number of the book handbook appeared in February 1947, when there was not enough coal or electricity to work the printing machines. Some power was supplied by hand, and some by means of a trailer pump, which had been used to pump water into the fires caused by the Germans in their air raids. The first six parts were printed on rationed paper by the Broadwater Press Limited of Welling Garden City. The other three parts, pages 129 to 176, 369 to 476, by Messrs. W.S. Cowell Limited of Ipswich. That characteristic statement of the pagination of parts 7 to 9 tells you something about the founder, a remarkable man who seldom stayed to finish what he had begun called Reginald Horrocks. But it tells you more about the conditions in which not only books but the staples of life, the other staples of life, I should say, like food and clothes, were rationed the war-torn Britain of 30 years ago seems almost unimaginably remote now. But with all that, the contents of the book handbook are a recognizable mirror of what you will find in the book collector of today. I'm not going to describe them in any detail, but they ranged from medieval manuscripts to contemporary book illustration, from book binding to the Bay Psalm book. It contained, contained a bibliography of that extraordinary 18th century novelist, Robert Bage, an exhaustive account of the great 16th century French book collector, Jacques-Auguste de Tout, and a series of articles by the venerable Sidney Cockerell, who had started his career as secretary to William Morris's Kelmscott Press and ended it as director of the Fitzwilliam Museum, Cambridge, on signed manuscripts in my collection. I particularly like a piece by Gilbert Fabes, then manager of Foyle's Rare Book Department, on a series of encounters with uh, George Bernard Shaw in the, sh in the course of buying superfluous books no longer wanted when Shaw was selling his London flat. There was inevitably a certain amount of confusion, and Fabes concluded one letter with an apologetic, I am afraid I might be in Mr. Shaw's bad books. He got a postcard by return. It simply said, Mr. Shaw has no bad books. <laughs> the book handbook staggered on at irregular intervals from 1947 to 1950. But in 1951, perhaps in some financial straits, the last three numbers printed by Messrs. W.S. Cowell are appreciably more substantial and more elegant than their predecessors, a change took place. This was due to the impact of the late Lord Kemsley, then one of England's major newspaper magnates, owner in particular of the prestigious Sunday, London Sunday Times, who had just embarked on a career, brief as it turned out, but heady, of what I can only call bibliophily. This embraced the collecting of books himself on the one hand and the establishment of a publishing business to which shortly afterwards a small printing shop was added, both bearing the same imprint, the Dropmore Press. Dropmore was Lord Kemsley's splendid country house. 
So, with a new enthusiasm and new funds, the book handbook entered a new existence with a new sense of order and method and even an editorial board drawn from Lord Kemsley's associates. It became a quarterly, and what was now called the second volume duly achieved four numbers, the first two printed by Messrs. Cowell and the second by the new Dropmore Press, whose imprint as publisher appeared on the whole volume. But volume two was the last. Horrocks was an individualist who did not acclimatize to corporate life, even on this modest scale. Irreconcilable petty conflict resulted in a decision to close down the book handbook. This was, however, reckoning without the readers, who were determined that it should not die. A deputation of the most prominent and determined, among them Percy Muir, John Hayward, John Carter, and Ian Fleming, persuaded Lord Kemsley to grant it a reprieve. The terms were that they should undertake the management themselves. This change of management dictated a change of title. So, in 1952, the book handbook became the book collector. Apart from this, there was very little change. The format was preserved, and Sir Sidney Cockerell's articles on the manuscripts in his collection continued as if nothing had happened. At the end of the year, the page size was increased, a distinct advantage when it came to reproducing things like title pages and bindings of large books, which suffer by reduction. Since then, apart from the covers, of which more later, nothing much has changed about the layout and appearance of the book collector. Who, who were they, these authoritative enthusiasts who now took over the book collector and gave it the character and quality that has ensured its survival through thick and thin till now? Who were Carter, Muir, Fleming, Hayward? Well, they were, I suppose, the heroes of my youth. And to explain that, I have to interject here a few words of pure autobiography. Let me apologize in advance for this piece of egocentricity. I was born and brought up in Cambridge, a university town where my father was a professor. We lived in a large house, more or less full of books. About 20,000, I once calculated. Some were new, but quite a lot were old. My father, who was born in 1874, had been buying books all his life, and even the books he'd bought new as a young man were now quite old. Besides, in his young day, old books were quite cheap. I still have his folio Euripides printed in Baal in 1564, and it has the price he paid marked inside it. Eight shillings and sixpence, seven shillings cash. Those were the days when university booksellers were happy to give unlimited credit to young academics, and eight, eight and six or seven shillings was even then probably cheaper than a new Oxford text of the same author. Cambridge had three other assets as far as I was concerned. A university library from which senior members of the university were allowed to borrow. A university press, world famed for its fine printing under the watchful eye of Stanley Morrison, perhaps the greatest authority on the subject of this century. And David's bookstall, the stall in the market where old Gustav David would set out the books he had bought cheap and still priced cheap every week. 
On his 70th birthday, his many friends in the university offered the old man the choice of an honorary degree or a celebratory dinner. Characteristically, he chose the latter. He did himself well, cried gently at the moving speeches in his honour, but went to sleep before the time came for him to reply. So it came about that I can't really remember a time when I was not hooked on old books. I still have the 1651 Elsevier Catullus that I bought when I was ten from David for sixpence, a whole week's pocket money. I can still remember the excitement of reading the first English encyclopedia, Bartholomew Anglicus de Proprietatibus Rerum, in English, I wasn't that precocious. But in the 1535 edition, printed by Thomas Bartlett, that father took out of the library, believe it or not, for me to read. In 1946, I went to school in London and spent my first half holiday scouring the Charing Cross Road. A visit to Quaritch's distinguished bookshop on a subsequent holiday was less happy. I went in and waited, but no one paid much attention to me. There was not a lot of me to pay attention to. So I crept upstairs to the first floor where I knew the best books were kept and were soon happily browsing. Meantime, my absence had been noted, and as I had clearly not gone out through the front door, a pursuit was instituted. It was fiery-faced Mr. Newton, whom some of you will remember, who ran me down and out of the shop. Nor, not, I think, actually by the ear, though it felt like it with the words, there's nothing in there for you, Sonny. <laughs> it was the last word that rankled even more than the patent untruth of the first. London led to a new enthusiasm. Much of it was still blitzed, and at the end of the school garden, between it and the Houses of Parliament, was a small printing works that had stopped an incendiary bomb. Anything usable had moved, been moved out. And there the remnants stood, waiting for renovation or demolition. Its punctured roof roughly covered with a tarpaulin that flapped in the wind. I discovered that if you climbed up a drain pipe and wriggled under the tarpaulin, you could get in through the hole in the roof. I got an elementary book on printing out of the library and some ink from a handicraft shop and laboriously taught myself to set type. In a warped and rusty composing stick, and print it on a dilapidated old treadle platen press. I still blush when I look at my 13-year-old apprentice effort, a small book. How could anyone have been quite so blind to every canon of good printing and typographic taste? But better, better times were at hand. I went home that Christmas and asked Father for a, for a, a printing press. He went to see Walter Lewis, the university printer, Lewis said, well, it's quite a coincidence. Michael Hornby has just asked me if I can find a good home for his father's press. Now, Michael Hornby was the son of St. John Hornby, the founder of the celebrated Ashendine Press. It was, in fact, even more of a coincidence than Lewis thought. Michael Hornby had been one of my father's pupils. So, before long, I was delightedly pulling the bar of the old 1853 Hodgkinson and Cope, Royal Albion, one of the best hand presses I've ever set hands on. Now it's Southern Methodist. The Cambridge University Press provided type and advice, and slowly the quality of my work improved. By the time I got to Oxford as a student, I'd become quite ambitious. And the Duke of Wellington gave me an unpublished contemporary memoir of his great ancestor to print, 
And it was, by my standards, a runaway bestseller. I printed and sold a thousand copies. And several of the paper papers that reviewed it were quite complimentary about its appearance. The last book I printed was Francis Cornford's last book of poems, 96 pages long, with illustrations in seven colors, and an edition of 1,500 copies, 74 color workings. It took two years, and it was a bit of a failure, I'm bound to admit. The ordinary edition sold out quite quickly, but the limited edition, which was to have been signed by the author, fell through. She died seven weeks before the, I printed the last sheet. But still, this brought me in touch with Geoffrey Keynes, her cousin by marriage, and I owe to him and Tim Munby, the genial and generous librarian of King's College, Cambridge, my introduction to a wider circle afflicted with the same passion for books that I had. This, and I do apologize for this long digression, brings me back to the founding fathers of the book collector. John Hayward was and remained the most powerful. Although a cripple, multiple sclerosis had begun to set in when he was the, br the brilliant undergraduate editor of the complete works of Rochester. And now confined to a wheelchair, he conducted business from a desk in a bay window overlooking the Thames on Cheney Row. Until recently, he had shared a flat with T.S. Eliot, whose muse and critic he had been during the writing of some of his best poetry. If you want to know more of this extraordinary association, read Helen Gardner's fascinating and sympathetic appreciation in her study of the four quartets. This had come to an abrupt end with Eliot's second marriage, and there was a new edge to John's always mordant command of those who came to see him. Everyone did come to see him. Printers came to have their proofs excoriated. Poets abided his merciless tongue for the quality of creative criticism he provided. Librarians and book collectors came to listen to his fascinating and malicious gossip. No one could leave him without quailing at the thought of what John would say about them behind their backs. None failed to come back for fear of what he would say if they did not. None of this gives any, any suggestion of the magnetism and charm of this extraordinary man who turned all his weakness into strength, his once handsome face now a gargoyle, his legs immobile, only one hand moving, but that capable of writing a still beautiful hand. He dominated the early years of the book collector. Although two others, more able-bodied than John, were nominally editors, one after the other, it was in fact John who took all the decisions, chose the articles, and rewrote and criticized till the hapless authors gave in from sheer exhaustion. He whose magisterial comments on sales and exhibitions, institutional acquisitions and catalogues, gave the magazine a new and powerful authority in the world of old and rare books and manuscripts. At the same time, the editorial board was very much a team. Percy Muir was the oldest of the group. His education had stopped when he left school, after which he'd been a clerk, actor, and soldier, only taking up bookselling by chance when he was demobilized in 1919. How he became a partner and eventually owner of Elkin Matthews, the great name of the 90s, and then in the 20s and 30s, the most adventurous and scholarly of antiquarian booksellers, is a tale told in the pages of the book collector and subsequently in his autobiography, Minding My Own Business. 
By sheer application, he had educated himself till he had become a tower of strength, not only among English, but also the European book trade. Literature in all languages, fine printing, theatre and music, early industry and trade found him well equipped, and his tall figure and peculiar hand-woven bow ties, his beautiful speaking voice, made him a striking figure. But perhaps his principal contribution to the book collector was not the admirable and copious articles and notes that he provided up to a month or two before his lamented death four years ago, but his friendship with Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming's name will be familiar to you in another context, uh, whose spectacular popular success and exploitation has overlain the real quality of his early writing, notably Casino Royale. What you may not have known is that Fleming was, and had been since just before the war, a book collector of great determination and originality. His subject matter was the books that demonstrated the progress of the human mind since 1800. Nobody else was in the field. The books were not, then, not even the origin of species, particularly expensive, but they were hard to find. Fleming, working hard in, in naval intelligence during the war, and as foreign editor of Lord Kemsley's Sunday Times after the war, did not have time to look for them himself and made Percy Muir his agent. It was ideal for Percy too, whom the war had forced to abandon London. Choosing the subjects and the books whiled away many blank hours during the war, and after it, the more abstruse foreign items, such as Semmelweis's Die Etiologie, were a splendid excuse to renew pre-war friendships in Italy and Germany, where he had a tremendous influence in patching over the wounds of war. Fleming, then, was ideally placed to rescue the book collector from a crisis in 1954, in that year, Lord Kemsley gave up books as suddenly as he had taken up with them in 1952. The Dropmore Press was closed down and the book collector would have followed. Fleming rescued it. He was just beginning to reap the rewards of the success of Casino Royale and felt he could offer to buy the book collector from Lord Kemsley for £100, which he did. Still, it was an anxious moment for the editorial board, now solely responsible for the journal's future. They decided to try and protect it by asking one or two wealthy, book-loving friends to act as guarantors by putting up some capital, which would provide the reserves needed in emergency. Several people responded, notably Mr. Paul Mellon, with great generosity, and the book collector was off again with no visible change in editorial policy or physical appearance, except that it had a new printer, James Shand, of the Shenville Press, a firm as distinguished as the Kerwin Press, if less well-known, for the quality of its printing. It was at this moment that I first began to read the book collector regularly, and as I turn the pages now, I can still recapture the excitement that I felt when I first saw them. There were the admirable and still continuing series of book, bi bibliographical notes and queries, Howard Nixon's English book bindings, now enshrined in a book, T.J. Brown's English literary autographs, unfamiliar libraries from Manchester to Los Angeles, from Cashel in the west of Ireland to Erevan in Soviet Georgia, contemporary collectors, Mr. Robert Taylor, Mr. Bradley Martin, Albert Ehrman, Major Abbey, 
while portrait of a bibliophile ranged from Humphrey Duke of Gloucester in the 15th century to Charles de Spolberg de Lovenjul, who collected his, the great, his great French contemporaries in the 19th century. Above all, there was Uncollected Authors, a series of invaluable author bibliographies, beginning with John Hayward's, assisted by his old friend, the subject of the piece, Raymond Chandler. And there, most of all, was John Hayward's authoritative commentary, a feature that still continues, though I don't think that I can provide quite the authority or the sharpness which John used to provide. The feature articles frequently dealt with new and unfamiliar subjects. Beta radiography for the reproduction of watermarks was first described in the book collector. And here, Graham Pollard's brilliant resurrection of Anglo-Saxon bookbinding by X-ray photography also appeared. Here, too, the strange conduct of the Cathedral Library of Saragossa was first exposed. And Murray Walter of UCLA here pieced together the astonishing story of the suppressed crypto-anti-Semitic version of Thomas Mann's Walsung und Blut, resurrected from waste sheets of the suppressed issue of the magazine in which it had appeared, which had been providentially preserved for packing by the bookseller publisher. How much bibliography owes to the parsimonious habits of booksellers. Articles on such various subjects as the libraries of Red Brick Universities by Robert Vosper and of the First Church at Monterey, Harding's unique, on, on Harding's unique collection of songbooks, once at Chicago and now at the Bodleian Library, Oxford, on libertine literature in England, 1660 to 1745, on the flood-damaged libraries of Florence in 1967, the first full-length report, on the great firm of Tauschnitz, an Ukrainian bookbinding, one of many from behind the Iron Curtain, including one on Marx and Engels as book collectors. Have I time for a brief excursus? Uh, Marx was an absolutely incurable book collector. Um, he was collecting the 17th century pamphlets of Sir William Petty, uh, undoubtedly for their antiquarian as well as their... Uh, factual content and his poor wife had frequently to complain about the inability to of uh, anybody to move in their suburban house and when Marx died he left his library in his will uh, partly a small part to La Salle with the, with the leader of the French party uh, but the major part to Engels and when Engels died he left his entire library to Babel uh, at the SPD in Berlin. He left very exact instructions as to how his library was to be transported so as to avoid the, uh, the, uh, the German police because the SPD was prescribed. So it was shipped to Bergen in Norway and from Bergen, disguised as firewood, it was uh, transported to Berlin. Engels had left a special bequest of the money to buy a case of hock to celebrate the arrival of the library if it arrived safely, and I'm happy to say that the bequest was taken up. And there it remained as the sort of ordinary part of the ordinary lending library of the SPD in Berlin. And then, of course, the party was prescribed again, totally and utterly, in 1933. And the building was taken over to be part of Goebbels's uh, propaganda ministerium. And the building was knocked about, but not destroyed, I'm thankful to say, by the war. And there, when it's in the East Berlin, when the Russians 
came and started looking around. They discovered, buried and covered in dirt, in the basement of this building, no less than 280 books which had belonged to Marx. Many of the margins covered with his marginalia. He was an incurable scribbler in margins. And when I met Professor Bruno Kaiser, who, who subjected this material to the first learned inspection, he, I remember he referring to a contemporary event. He said, it was, for me, like discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one could see what he meant. Anyway, that story was one told in the book collector. And there was, a, uh, 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 among others, there was uh, an article on the first edition of Little Black Sambo. All this by such authorities as, as the late Bill Jackson, Tim Munby, Geoffrey Keynes, Alfred Fairbank, William B. Todd, David Foxen, and Simon Noel Smith. It was, I suppose, natural that when I came up to London, Oxford over to work at a publishing firm, I should gradually have got sucked into this vortex. The immediate cause was Stanley Morrison, the older and much admired friend of Carter, Muir and Hayward, who invited me in 1959 to work for him, thereby setting me off on a course which led finally to, to writing his biography and finishing his last great work, Politics and Script. Immediately, I found myself doing odd reviews for the book collector, but what caught John Hayward's attention was an article I wrote called The Aesthetic Investor's Guide to Current Literary Values, in which I attempted to prove that every author had a calculable value, mathematical or financial, it didn't matter which, uh, that could be worked out by correlating the original price of his works, the current price paid for them, the number of copies printed and now surviving, multiplied by the number of lines accorded to him in the Cambridge History of English Literature. <laughs> John Hayward liked it. It, it's, it sent up both the book trade and the academic lit crit with impartial abandon. I read it again the other day. I still think it's funny. Uh, and so I was admitted to the terrors and delights of tea at Carlisle Mansions. John's conversation was ribald, erudite, and riveting. I learned much and began to be less afraid. I even took our eldest child to see him. She was still crawling then. John fed her very sticky chocolate cake and watched with cheerful malice in the hope that she would spread it on the T.S. Eliot manuscripts, then on a convenient bottom shelf. What I didn't realize was that John, immobile, had begun to be dependent on me. People used to say that he kept alive on willpower alone, with his terrible disabilities, you felt that it was the activity of the mind, the endless curiosity about other people that forced his reluctant limbs to the little activity they could compass. He lived vicariously through the activity of others. In 1965, I remember, we had had no holiday until October, when we were to snatch a bare week, starting on a Friday. That day, John rang me up with some question about a review which I couldn't follow. He had no muscular control of his mouth, and this was apt to prolong his telephone calls still further. In the end, I gave up. John, I said, I'm off on holiday today. I've got nothing else to do. I'll come down and see you. So I went down, and we sorted out the problem. I still didn't quite see what it was. And as I, w I was going, as I was going, he said to me, 
You will make sure everything is all right, won't you? I said, but John, you'll be here. You can look after it. Yes, he said, but I want to be sure that you will if anything goes wrong. I was puzzled by his insistence, but I, of course I will, I said. And I went off. And that night he died. And three weeks later, I was at his memorial service in St. Luke's, Chelsea. A posse consisting of Muir, Carter and Munby rounded me up afterwards. And as I stood against the wall of the North Isle, I looked at them, hats well pulled down, hands in their overcoat pockets. And I realized that my hour had come. And with John's last words still in my ears, I agreed to do my best to take his place. And somehow, 19 years later, we're still here. I still wonder at it. I was plunged immediately into a financial crisis. Ian Fleming had died shortly before John, and the cumulative effects of tax on, his, on their two estates swallowed up all the book collector's reserves. We survived that, and we survived the death three years later of our printer James Shand. But the greatest of all the losses came in January 1976 with the death of the kindest and closest of friends to the book collector and its editor, John Carter. Jake, as many knew him, was as distinguished in person as he was in mind. A scholar of King's College, Cambridge, he was for many years manager of Scribner's rare book department and as such made a, lot of, a host of friends in this country. Many, I dare say, in this unit audience were as proud as I am to number him among their friends. He only made one enemy, T.J. Wise, whose forgeries he exploded in a well-known book. As editor, he also co-opted me onto that great catalogue of all the world's greatest books, printing in the mind of man. A great classical scholar, Monke, his critical talents were displayed in his edition of Hausmann's Prose, a writer of great elegance himself, the ABC for book collectors is a perennial reminder of his skill. But of all the gifts, the one I treasure most was his encouragement of the young, notably myself. I miss his wit, his criticism, his help, and above all, his gaiety. Well, where do we stand now? The book collector is still here. about to celebrate its 20th anniversary under my editorship. It has about 2,000 subscribers, almost half of them in this country. Its contributors, the writers of articles and reviews, are also drawn equally from Britain and the USA. I like to think of its registered offices, so to speak, in Atlantis. And the leader with which each issue begins, which I usually write myself, about some topic or book of current interest, is firmly aimed at both sides of the Atlantic. Then come the articles, which follow the same pattern as I described. Then there is news and comment, all the latest news of books and libraries and exhibitions, book sales and catalogues, book collectors, booksellers and librarians. The whole world of old and rare books. It's written by several hands and is topical, but careful, sometimes funny, and only scandalous if I know it's true. After that, there is bibliographical notes and queries, an invaluable agony column for those who have made some small but important discovery they want to get off their chest or want to run down some missing manuscript or edition or have found some other bibliographical conundrum. After that come the book reviews, never, I hope, dull, 
and usually authoritative. That makes up the text, but there is one other important component, the advertisements. We take a personal pride in these and see to it that the design and presentation is notably elegant. I like to think of them as a directory of all the best booksellers in Britain, the USA, and Europe. They, in turn, get the best return for their loyal support, or so they tell me. Finally, there is the cover. This has always been one of the book collector's most distinctive features. In the old days, when we were still printed by letterpress, it was printed on a different coloured paper each issue, with a border of coloured printer's flowers surrounding the contents. This design was, I'm ashamed to say, plagiarised by so many who have now become a closely studied species, rarely found outside wildlife parks, like book fairs, or reservations, like libraries. But somehow they survive. And so does the book collector. A new generation of subscribers and contributors is beginning to enjoy and renew the tradition that started all but 30 years ago. It is, I like to think, a distinctive and even admirable tradition, one that brings individuals and institutions, collectors, booksellers and librarians, a bit closer together. I can't but feel myself as any more than a link in the chain. And if I've given myself more space than that this evening, I'm sorry. The journal itself is a better record of what it stands for than the chronicle of its editor. And I'm sure that if any of you who don't subscribe already wish to do so, arrangements can be made. <laughs> Speaking from this platform at the end of January, Sandra Kirschenbaum, the founder and editor of Fine Print, turned to her audience at one point and said, now don't come up to me afterwards and say, gee, it's a real labor of love, isn't it? <laughs> you may speak to Mr. Barker on any other subject, or if you insist even that, in room 502 at a reception following this lecture to which you are all cordially invited and indeed encouraged to attend, or if you are not going to attend, at least uh, beg to leave this room at once so that those of us who otherwise have to be here to close it can join Mr. Barker in room 502.